0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I spent a lot of time with and around stories, and one of the stories that uh, I really enjoyed over the last year that I hadn't heard before comes from this remarkable book called The Land of the Dead. And it's a story of a boy named Tarvaah. And Tarva lived centuries and centuries ago. It's an ancient story. And he lived in Mongolia. And at the time of his life, there was a famine in the land and disease ran rampant. And it was more than just disease that people started to die and they started to endure painful deaths. So Tarva ah decided that he did not want to experience the same kind of painful death that he was seeing all around him so he laid down one day gave up his spirit and went into the underworld and when he got to the underworld he met the Khan of the underworld the leader of the underworld who told him You're here too soon. Your time is not up. You've got to go back to the land of the living. You can't stay here in the land of the dead. But before you go, I will give you one thing that you can take with you. And so the Khan showed him everything that was available to be taken out of the land of the dead back to the land of the living. And there was greed and there was joy. There was hope. There was failure, everything that you could imagine. And finally, Tarva'i made his choice, that the thing that he would take back to the land of the living were stories. And when he returned to the land of the living, he was shocked to discover that the crows thought, believed that he was dead. So while he was in the underworld, in the land of the dead, the crows plucked out his eyes. But by the time Tarva'a died, decades and decades later, he was known as one of the wisest men who had ever lived because he spent his life traveling the known world, telling stories. And people thought, That he was so much wiser, so much smarter than anyone else had ever been because he told stories. Because what we learn is stories are a way of seeing the world. And what's remarkable about that is that last week, Pastor Chris began a series that we're going to be in for several weeks about the Bible and about reading the Bible Because the reality is for most of us, by the time that we got our Bible, it had been bound and chaptered and verse. None of those things are natural to the Bible. Every time you heard someone teach the Bible, they would pluck out a scripture here and pluck out a scripture there. And you didn't know what all to do with it. And so whenever we feel something is big and complex and intimidating, the thing that we do is we either avoid it or we try to pretend. So it's, it's the same reason that people don't go to the gym because they're worried that if they show up at the gym, there are going to be all of these other people there who have always been at the gym and they're going to look silly or stupid because they don't know how the machines work and they're going to be made fun of so they just avoid it or they act like they know what they're doing. And the Bible has been that for some of us. That people could take just a little sliver of it and then make you or try to make you, intimidate you into doing the thing that they wanted you to do. But in reality, the Bible comes to us as a story. It is a way of seeing. And we need to know that because whatever you are doing right now in your life, whatever you've done in your life, how you treat your husband, your wife, your partner, how you speak to people that you work with, how you drive, how you spend your money, how you spend your free time, who you vote for, who you don't vote for, what news you watch, what you read. Those are all because of a story that right now, all of us are living functionally out of a story that we believe to be true about the world and about us. Our lives are the source of story. It's what you believe to be true. And so God knows that we are wired this way, that we are wired for story, that we live out of story. So the Bible actually comes to us not as a list of propositions or definitions, not a list of doctrines. You just can't go and open up your Bible and look at T for Trinity. It comes to us as a story. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to walk through with you the entire Bible. And to do that, I'm going to have to skip a few details. The first act, the first move of the Bible is creation. And this is how Genesis tells us that story. In the beginning, God created everything, the heavens above the earth below. Here's what happened. At first, the earth lacked shape and was totally empty and a dark fog draped over the deep while God's spirit wind hovered over the surface of empty waters. Then there was the voice of God. Let there be light and light flashed into being. God saw that the light was beautiful and good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. Evening gave way to morning. That was day one. So right at the beginning, the first thing we learn is that God created, that God created everything everything. And what the Hebrew word of what God created is this tovu habohu, which is more than just empty, but it's this idea in the Hebrew mind that the world was dangerous and wild, whatever existed, that that's how they thought of it. And God brings control and beauty and meaning and creation out of this chaos. And what you need to know from the very beginning is that everything God created was good. The water was good and the day was good and vegetation was good and fruit was good and animals were good. That everything God creates is good. And then God says to God's self, let us create humans in our own image and it was not good. And the reason that humankind was not good is because God decided that humans should be made, that you and I should be made in God's image. And God lives in community. There's God and Jesus and Holy Spirit, and there always has been. And you, as an image bearer of God, are made to live in community. And what we learn right from the beginning is that God created everything good, and then he did something you wouldn't expect. He tells the first man to name all of the animals, everything else that God has created. And so you and I have the ability. To make decisions. And we are made for community. And for whatever reason, for God's own reason, it has always been critical to God that you have agency, that you can make decisions. Because it's that ability to make decisions, an ability that I probably wouldn't give to you that leads to the next phase of the story, which is crisis. And here's what happens in the crisis. The serpent comes to the woman and he says, is it true that God has forbidden you to eat fruits from the trees of the garden? And Eve says, no, serpent. God said we are free to eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. We are granted access to any variety and all amounts of fruit with one exception, the fruit from the tree found in the center of the garden. God instructed us not to eat or touch the fruit of that tree or we would die. Die. No, you'll not die. God is playing games with you. The truth is that God knows the day you eat the fruit from that tree, you will awaken something powerful in you and become like him, possessing knowledge of both good and evil. The woman approached the tree, eyed its fruit, and coveted its mouth-watering, wisdom-granting beauty. She plucked a fruit from the tree and ate. She then offered the fruit to her husband who was close by and he ate as well. Suddenly their eyes were opened to a reality previously unknown. For the first time they sensed their vulnerability and rushed to hide their naked bodies stitching fig leaves into crude loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the eternal God walking in the cool misting shadows of the garden. The man and his wife Took cover among the trees and hid from the eternal God. Where are you? When I heard the sound of you coming in the garden, Adam says, I was afraid because I am naked, so I hid from you. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in the center of the garden, the very one I commanded you not to eat from? It was she, Adam says. The woman you gave me as companion, put the fruit in my hands and I ate. And God says to the woman, what have you done? Then this is the crisis. The world that God created as good. Now has something in it. Sin. And it's not just that, that sin is a problem. That because God tells them that if you eat from this tree, like you will surely die. And the problem when you read the text is that it's not that Adam and Eve immediately die. It's that they eventually die. And so each of us are born then with an existential crisis that we don't like this idea that we just have to accept that we're going to die. And we have rushed past this very central thing at the very beginning of scripture. That you are not made for death. Have you ever thought about that? That that because everyone else before we got here has died, we just accept that that's part of the whole deal. That you are not made for death when sin entered the world. Death entered the world. And so the real problem in the scriptures is not and never has been sin. The real problem is death. And so, over the next bit of scripture, the next few episodes, what you get are people struggling to deal with the problem of sin and death, and they keep choosing death. And so you get all of these stories about death. You get Noah, and when everybody is out just doing their own thing, that doesn't lead to any place good. And so God says, well, let's try this. And then the next band of stories you get are things like the Tower of Babel, when everybody says, you know what? Instead of just being bad on our own, we can all get together and be bad. And that doesn't work either. So God has tried it. He's tried just letting everybody do their own thing, and then he's tried letting everybody cooperate to do their own thing. And then he decides to do something different. He finds one man, one man who is righteous, who is faithful, and his name is Abram. And Abram and his wife are childless, which creates a crisis for them, an economic crisis, because who's going to get all of Abram's stuff when he dies because he has no heir? So it's going to go to a slave son, and God promises that he is going to give him a son, and that son will then have his own children, and Abram's family will become a great nation. And so one night, God and Abram are talking to one another, And Abram says, like, God, how do I know that you're going to keep this promise, that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? And So God puts Abram into a deep sleep. And there are all of these animals that Abram has collected and cut in half. And God takes this smoking pot and walks through the middle of those animals which is an ancient way of making a contract. And the next piece of the story is covenant. That God makes a covenant with Abram. And you know what it's like to make a deal. Like if you've ever bought a house and you get there at your mortgage company and they have those 5,000 pieces of paper you have to sign and they just kind of tell you what they are and you don't read them, you wouldn't understand them if you did. And you know the deal is if I don't sign these, I don't get the house. But it's basically making this deal like they're going to do this and you're going to do this. But that's not what happens with Abraham and God. All of the responsibilities of this covenant are on God. And the rest of the story of Scripture is God keeping God's promise to God about what he's going to do with you and what he's going to do with me, that God keeps God's promise to God. And one of the reasons we don't get that is because we're terrible at keeping our own promises to ourselves. You can't keep a promise to you by the time you get up in the morning. Set the alarm, go to bed, rings in the morning. Snooze, you've already broken a promise to yourself. And so what happens in the rest of the First Testament or the Old Testament is this story of Abraham's family. It's the story of his sons and his children's children. And when they go down into Egypt, when they come out of Egypt, when they are a nation, when they go into slavery, when they return, it's all about Abraham's family. And so sometimes when you're reading the scriptures, you'll ask yourself questions like, I wonder what's going on at this time in world history in Japan or in the Americas, in Antarctica. And those are fine questions to ask. But the reality is the Bible's not telling that story. The story that the Bible is telling is the story of this one family and their relationship with God. And it gives all of these names and places that don't seem familiar to you, but God is keeping this promise. God makes this covenant with one man about his family. What we know in the ancient world, as the Hebrews first, and then the Jews, more than that, God tells Abraham that from this family, I am going to save the world, which leads to the next stage of the story, which is Christ, that Jesus is born both in the priestly line of Aaron and the kingly line of David. He is the king priest who is promised in the first Testament and he comes and lives a life and nobody in this room and no one you ever met follows Jesus because of what he taught or who he healed or who he hung out with the reason We follow Jesus, and the reason that for 2,000-plus years people have followed Jesus is because he was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. Now, all the other things are fine because you have to remember, in the ancient world, you have a lot of people who are claiming to be God— and they're saying like, I'm God and I'm God. And what validates Jesus as the true God is his ability to get up from the dead, which no one else without the power of Jesus has been able to do. And this is the way that the apostle Paul talks about it in first Corinthians 15. He says, let me remind you, brothers and sisters of the good news, the gospel, the euangelion that, pre- that I preached when you were, when we first met. It is the essential message that you have taken to heart. The central story you now base your life on. The central story you now base your life on. And through this gospel, you are liberated. Unless, of course, your faith has come to nothing. For I pass down to you the crux of it all, which I had also received from others, that the anointed one, the liberating king, died for our sins and was buried and raised from the dead on the third day and this happened to fulfill the scriptures, it was the perfect climax to God's covenant story. And when Jesus rises from the dead, all of those scriptures that came before the life of this one family have been fulfilled. But not only that, that when Jesus dies, you hear about, in the scriptures, about clouds and curtains being torn, and what that means is everybody now who was not a part of that family is now in that family, is now a part of Jesus' family, and this is why Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of a very large family, and this is the conquering over sin and death because the problem, as Hebrews puts it, is that you and I have lived As slaves to the fear of death. Because Jesus comes and he is forgiving people of sin way before his crucifixion. That grace and forgiveness have always been a thing. And now here's the climax of the story that you are living and you will never stop living. Your body will stop working, but you will never stop living. And so all of the New Testament are these people who go, you know what, that guy got up from the dead. We should probably write down some of the stuff that he taught and some of the things that he did. And we read the Bible, not because it's just the Bible, but because it is a testimony about solving the problem, the crisis of death. And all good stories. You need to know how it ends. And so in the book of Revelation, the apostle John has a vision. And this is the vision he gets. He says, I looked again, and I could hardly believe my eyes. Everything above me was new. Everything below me was new. Everything around me was new because the heaven and earth that had been passed away and the sea was gone completely. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride on her wedding day, adorned for her husband and for his eyes only. And I heard a great voice Coming from the throne. See, the home of God is with his people. He will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The prophecies are fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning no more. Crying, no more. Pain, no more. For the first things have gone away. This is your future. That the story of God, the story of the scriptures, is that there is a day coming not dependent upon your own righteousness, not dependent on your own goodness, not depending on the thing that you said or the act you regret or the decision that you made. Well, God will come in his fullness and you will live with God. And just like in the beginning, everything will be good.